Get ready to hear some noise tonight. You're about to go behind enemy lines with the original Blues Hockey Podcast. Let's go Blues Radio. This is Let's Go Blues Radio, Behind Enemy Lines, Season 8, Episode 9, Franchise Episode number 195, almost 200, we're getting there folks, already talked to Kurt and Bill, there will be a live show coming soon, it might be our 200th episode, so that would slate us for just a couple weeks from now. Big thanks to the Wild and Free for the use of their song Fire. Great stuff from them as always. Tom Calhoun, PAGuyTom.com. Make sure you check him out. Uh, Blues PA Guy, who does an unbelievable job behind the microphone. Still has that streak intact of never missing the Blues game since he retired. So uh, very, very awesome. I'm not sure what the number's at now, but I know it's it's up there. It's up there. Uh, check out the letsgoblues.com shop and consider buying a reasonably priced shirt, mug, or sticker. All proceeds go back into the show, so you're helping us out when you do that. You can also help us out by subscribing to our show on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen at letsgobluesradio.com. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review, and if you would be so kind as to make it a five-star review... Well, I would just like to shake your hand, because that would be great. Well, we're going to open the show with uh, the segment of the summer. I know the buzz around Blues Twitter and Blues Reddit, all you folks out there, has been this segment. It's not true at all, but that's what I'm going to claim it as anyway. We're going to keep the party going. For this segment, this is where Blues fans, you, the listeners of this show, get to write in, let us know, myself, Kurt, and Bill, because they are reading these too, uh, what the uh, the Stanley Cup has meant for you, personally. What uh, finally seeing this team capitalize and, and go all the way, what it means to you, and, and uh, you know anything you want to talk about, whether it's uh, you know how you got into the game, um, you know... The, the reaction you've had this summer, uh, your reaction to Game 7 win against Boston, whatever it is, we love to hear about it. Uh, send us an email at radio at letsgoblues.com. That's radio at letsgoblues.com. And uh, just let us know about what's going on with uh, your happiness with the Blues able to finally clinch Lord Stanley's Cup. Today's email comes from Dan. He's a sophomore at the Ohio State University. I'm sorry, I think I said that wrong. The Ohio State University. Kurt, Billy, and Jeff. My name is Dan, and I am a sophomore at the Ohio State University and a St. Louis Blues fan. 
I wanted to write and thank you for the incredible opportunity to share what this championship means to me. Growing up in Toledo, Ohio, the main sports on the TV in my house were college football and basketball with little exposure to hockey. Occasionally, my dad would get tickets to go to Ann Arbor and watch the University of Michigan or Detroit or to Detroit to watch the winged wheelers at the Joe. Being born and raised a Michigan fan, iconic I know as I attend the Ohio State now, I never got much exposure to hockey due to an overwhelming emphasis on football. After attending a hockey game in Ann Arbor when I was around the age of 10 or 11, I noticed Michigan's coach was a former St. Louis Blue himself, Red Berenson. This is where my fandom of the St. Louis Blues began, even though their successes were few. <laughs> Tell me, Dan. At this point, I wouldn't say I started following the team by any means. However, they became the team I would always play with in NHL on my Xbox. Through watching more hockey, I began to fall in love with it, as it is the most exciting, fast-paced, anything-can-happen-at-any-time sport. By the way, the hyphen usage there, Dan, magnificent. The English degree owner in me is, uh, is very proud of you. This exciting nature of hockey is what captured my attention. I really started to pay attention to the Blues in high school as the school I attended had been state champions in recent years. This is where I started following the Blues more frequently, watching them whenever they're on TV in my network area. Watching the Blues lose to the Sharks in the conference finals in the 2016 playoffs was a heartbreaker. Uh, however, as a fan of Michigan football, I was used to the disappointment of my sports team, at least in my era of watching. This feeling of never having a team win any sort of championship just sat on my shoulders my whole life, never experiencing what it felt like to have a successful team. With that being said, these playoffs have changed that feeling. Following this team throughout the season and attending games whenever they are near me, which is normally in Columbus to play the Blue Jackets, was a great joy. I would watch a lot of the playoff games in bars as I go out with my friends just off campus and they would all hate on me telling me my team would never be good enough to win a cup and that hockey as a whole was an irrelevant sport. John Eider, this one is for you. Take that, John. The St. Louis Blues are Stanley Cup champions, baby. I found your podcast during exam week during the Winnipeg series of these playoffs and I loved listening to what you guys have to say. This is my only real source of news for St. Louis hockey, so if you have suggestions of what to read or watch, please send them my way. I will follow up with that at the end of this uh, reading of this email. Back to Dan. I listen to your podcast as well as Gloria on loop through Spotify while at work. This makes putting up with my coworkers and boss much more manageable. Back to the main discussion, once St. Louis made it to the finals, I had to get more involved as a fan but couldn't afford tickets. As an early birthday present, my parents drove me to St. Louis where we watched Game 3 at Bar Ballpark Village. Uh, was I there that night? No, I was not there that night. Well, I'm sure you had a good time, though. Despite the score of Game 3, that may have been the most fun I've had watching any game. There you go. The atmosphere is the entire bar saying the national anthem, as well as just being around a group of people all cheering for the team I am normally alone in rooting for, was something I will never forget. For Game 7, I had some of my friends over as we watched in my living room with a commercial-grade truck horn attached to an air compressor, which sounded every time St. Louis scored. I'm sure my neighbors loved me for that, but anything for the cup. After the game, I did not know how to feel. Overcome with joy as I finally felt pride in a team I have been loyal to. Granted, I've only been a true following fan for about four to five years. 
I cannot imagine how this feels to the people who have waited 52 years. With that being said, I'm proud to call myself a fan of the St. Louis Blues, and I look forward to future visits to the great city of St. Louis, as well as future Cups. Thank you, let's go Blues, and play Gloria! Dan, that's uh, it's that's a uh, it's fun to read. That's that's a good that's some good stuff. Um, I enjoyed your call out to your certain friend. I guess has been uh, who's been giving you trouble. Um, yeah, it's funny. You you leave St. Louis and even even pockets of St. Louis, you do meet people who talk about how hockey's just not a relevant relevant sport. And it's just come on, man. Hockey is the you sit down and watch one game. You're gonna fall in love with it. That's that's how it happened to me. I, told the story about how I went to my first game and all of a sudden I was hooked. I couldn't get away from it. I still haven't been able to. So it's 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 the best game there is. I don't care what anyone says. It's fast. It's got checking. It's got speed. It's got just I mean everything you could want in watching a sporting event. Uh, you know, just world class athletes. Um, it's uh, and of course when I say world class athletes, I talk about my uh, summer men's league that I'm playing in, not the NHL, of course. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's great. I love it. And uh, you know, good luck to you there at the Ohio State University. Uh, and you asked uh, other things you should be reading or podcasts to listen to. Um, there's a lot, and, and I'm gonna feel bad because I know I'm probably gonna leave somebody out. Um, of course, you got our friends at the Blues NHL podcast, Jamie Rivers and Darren Kimball and Jim Cromer, friend of the show. Um, and then uh, the Blues Hockey Podcast, Jason Martin and Chris Frank. If you have any kind of a uh, inkling to listen to anybody talk about wrestling, they get that they, they do kind of fit that stuff in as well. So uh, it's kind of a fun little niche for people who enjoy them. Plus, you know, if you just like hockey, they they talk hockey more than anything. Obviously, um, in terms of, of what to read, I, I should mention the two guys one cup. I think they've officially changed their name. Uh, two guys one cup. There used to be two guys no cup. Uh, great stuff from them as well so that just search st louis blues podcast there's gonna be a bunch of us that come up um you know not saying only listen to blues podcast my guest today that we'll be talking to great for for hockey overall so uh that's the puck podcast i recommend them as well and then of course you know you got the writers jeremy rutherford over at the athletic uh well worth the, the subscription to the athletic just to read what jeremy writes he does such a good job um, just phenomenal. Uh, I, I I love what he's turned into since he left the post. I mean, he was a good writer with the post, but obviously there's there's key points that you have to hit when you're writing the gamers and all that. And we talked about a little bit uh, my interview with him uh, last summer when he was on. It's just it's such a different style of writing, and it really opens you up. Uh, it's more of a feature article type commentary, and uh, he does a wonderful job. So if you're not if you're not on the athletic. You need to get on there just to read Jeremy Rutherford's work. Of course, Jim Thomas, the Post-Dispatch, does a good job. Tom Timmerman, um, all great guys at the Post-Dispatch. Um, and then, of course, St. Louis Game Time. Uh, they are for, for a looking for something that a, a fan would enjoy reading and, and kind of like, you know, getting your head thinking like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, you know, from a fan perspective, this is pretty nice. Uh, stlouisgametime.com. And if you ever do attend a game, they sell printed versions outside of the arena, and they do a phenomenal job. Uh, Jeff Jones is involved in that. Uh, Brad Lee. Again, I know I'm listing people off, that, that and there's probably going to be somebody I'm going to leave out, but uh, there's, there's a lot of great content out there. Um, if I think of any more, I will email them out to you, and I apologize to anyone listening saying, Why didn't you mention me? I thought we were best friends. 
but you know, I, I my memory's horrible. I'm like an 82 year old man. That that face app that people are using on Facebook right now, I think I think it's just showing me what my mental state really is because my God, my memory's terrible. All right, let's get into the interview for today. Uh, again, I know I already mentioned it, but the Puck Podcast, we've already had Eddie Garcia on. This time we've got Doug Stolhand, uh, the uh, longtime partner of Eddie on their show. I think they're going on their 13th year now, maybe 14th. Um, right here in July, I think, was when they started, uh, I want to say 13 years ago. So he's a longtime Anaheim Ducks fan. He's been there since the beginning, which we talk about, and he's also an NHL media member. Uh, attends many NHL events and um, you know, including games, Kings games, Ducks games, uh, prospect tournaments over the summer. He does all that kind of stuff. So very involved in the sport, very involved in California hockey. Um, so here it is. We recorded this one uh, actually it was shortly after my interview with Eddie. So this was before the playoffs even started, and uh, you will definitely get a feel for that at the end of the interview when we talk about the Anaheim Ducks and winning their championships and what it would mean for St. Louis. Spoiler alert, I'm supposed to say that first. Anyway, here's Doug. So today we are talking Anaheim Ducks, and I am joined by Doug Stolhand of the Puck Podcast. Doug's a, a big uh, Anaheim Ducks fan. He's been there since the beginning, but we'll get to Doug in a moment. First, uh, got a couple interesting stats I wanted to read off uh, for this episode. Uh, St. Louis's all-time record against the Anaheim Ducks is uh, in 93 games played, they are uh, 45, 36, 5, and 7. And, of course, that uh, last two numbers there are uh, ties and then overtime losses. Uh, their first meeting was on December 12th, 1993, in Anaheim, and it was a 2-1 Anaheim overtime win. And, uh, Doug, I know you remember that well, so I'm going to go and ask you, who scored the game-winning goal in overtime for the Ducks? Oh, I do remember it well. It was Sean Ewan. I have no idea. <laughs> no, been, sir. Uh, what, 26 years? Yeah, it's been, oh, it's, yeah, 26 years, yep. Yeah, uh, no, it's, uh, or Todd, you and I would say, man, I, I don't remember many of those games because they weren't great that year, but they were better than the Kings. That's true. Which is what I remember the most about that season is uh, kind of the embarrassing theatrics that the Ducks tried to install into the NHL, and then the fact that the Kings were the defending Western Conference champions, and yet the, the Ducks finished higher than them in the standings that year as an expansion team. So that was a moment of pride for me right off the bat. But no, I have no idea who scored that first one. First one would have been Jared Scaldi. <laughs> yep. Uh, from Terry Yake and Tim Sweeney. I was going to guess Terry Yake. He was one of my favorites back then. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I would not have remembered Jared Scaldi at all. He could walk in here right now and uh, punch me in the face, and I wouldn't know who to tell the police. <laughs> Damn it, Jared! Yeah, I, I, uh, I I'd even be wearing his jersey, and I still wouldn't know who it was. <laughs> I actually do remember the name, but I can tell you one thing about the player, except that he scored the overtime winner against the Blues on uh, uh, December twelfth, nineteen ninety three. That's all I know about him now. So bring that to your next trivia night. Rare low-scoring game back then, as we know from uh, the '95, '96 Penguins that are that set every record apparently imaginable uh, until these Tampa Bay Lightning this season. Goal-scoring was a little bit more prolific back in the early '90s, and uh, so a two-one game 
was a rarity for sure. Because I know the first Ducks game, they gave up seven goals to the Detroit Red Wings. Yep. And uh, and we were off as a franchise. Yes. Not what the Vegas Golden Knights had. Well, the Blues' first game was a tie, so that uh, that's not even a possibility anymore. So that I guess that's not too bad to begin your your uh, your franchise on. Yeah. It, now, when you read those the stats and you said that Ducks are the Blues are forty six, thirty five, whatever it was, which one comes first, ties or shootout win? Uh, that would have been ties first, and then uh, overtime losses. I mean, that that's one of the problems that hockey needs to figure out because that sounds like you know an international area code yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's ridiculous to say as a fan they're 46 35 7 and 8 and you know you're like what what is going on here yeah uh, i think it's uh is it, it the ahl where they fans. still they still have the four numbers i don't know if they still do or not but I'm, i know the ahl did it for a little while yeah it's uh problematic for any new fans very intimidating to figure out what that means and they got to simplify that it's much easier to just say like nfl you know this team is nine and seven i get it you know that's easy to figure out the other two not sure where that's coming from yeah um it's it's have you ever tried explaining hybrid icing to a non-hockey fan that's pretty tough explain it to some of the linesmen Uh, (laughs) you know I still don't think they understand it because uh, you'll see plays blown dead where there's a clear winner from the uh, defensive team and the play's still blown dead and it's just, I don't I don't get it. The team that dumps it in is going to get there first. And, but it's all in the name of safety, right? That's right. That's right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we're, let's let's get into talking about the expansion year a little bit about the Anaheim Ducks. Uh, first question I want to have for you, you kind of mentioned uh, how the Ducks finished higher than the Kings and how that was kind of a bigger deal for you. Um, was it an instant hatred that you had for the LA Kings, or was it something that developed over time? I mean, was that a, was that a big deal for you that they actually did finish ahead of them in the standings the first year? Oh yeah, no, it was instant um, for many reasons. First of all, Kings fans, especially in 1993, had this undeserved arrogance. Uh, that they were just, because they had been around since 67, they were better than the Ducks. They were, oh, we were just a joke of a team. And, you know, it's like people my age that were born after 67, they had never known an NHL without the Kings. So they were the same as an original six team as far as they were concerned. But to me, uh, an NHL team is an NHL. You all had to start somewhere. You know, it's uh, like nobody is born knowing certain things other than how to breathe and things like that. But, you know, you don't, you're not born knowing how to program a computer. So treating somebody that is trying to learn how to program a computer like they're an idiot is ridiculous because we all had that first day. So everybody had their first year. And the reason I was attracted to the then Mighty Ducks of Anaheim was because I had the opportunity to be a fan of a team from day one and to remember everything about the franchise. And I was already an adult at the time, so uh, I could be, I could listen to uh, the games, watch the games, remember all the picks, the players, the games, and stuff like that. So it was an opportunity for me, but the Kings fans that I knew, uh, and certainly the ones that came to the games, treated us like we were second-class citizens, uh, didn't belong in the NHL. And so that made it an instant rivalry, and 
it was a big deal for the Ducks to finish ahead of the Kings because it gave you local bragging rights. I don't know how much your listeners know about Southern California geography, but Anaheim is about 40 miles south of L.A. It's in Orange County. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there's a difference between Orange County and L.A., quite a bit of difference in lifestyle. And so the the Ducks and the Kings were the first teams in SoCal sports that were in the same division, that were rivals against each other from Orange County and Anaheim. The Rams and Raiders coexisted for a long time, but the they weren't in the same division. They weren't even in the same conference. Lakers and Clippers were in the same building, but that was up in L.A., and so that was the first real Orange County-L.A. rivalry. And, yeah, it was definitely. There's a difference between Orange County and L.A. for sure, and that was big back then. So I, I know a little bit of the, the background because of what you've talked about on, on the Puck Podcast, you know, the Bakersfield Condors for you and the uh, all that, and, and, you know, you working for the, the team there in Fresno. But, um, yeah, I uh, I want to ask you, though, so for my listeners that don't know, um, before the Ducks came into existence, what was hockey like for you? Were you a Kings fan? And uh, if not, you know, did you have a rooting interest? Well, it was Bakersfield Fog at the time. Right. My, uh, that was my. That was a team that was coached by Keith Gretzky, who's now the uh, interim GM, I think, the Edmonton Oilers. But uh, no, the, the hockey growing up in Southern California did not exist. Really, the Kings were there, but in the '80s, uh, they weren't relevant, and cable TV was not as ubiquitous as it is now. So it was more a novelty uh if you were a hockey fan you certainly could find the games and you could you could understand and, uh, the game and all that but there was one team uh west of the rockies really and that was the kings so if you were out here you could watch the kings games and the, there was occasional games on usa network back in the day and then espn took over for a while so i would watch those games and i remember specifically the first hockey game i watched that i can remember watching was in 1984 when I was in Hawaii on vacation with my family and it was night my parents and I, my sister I think had gone out you could drink at 18 in Hawaii then so they had gone out for the night left me in the hotel I'm watching a game on ESPN and it was the Hartford Whalers and it was just this this place I had never heard of uh, Hartford this team I had never heard of I liked their their jerseys liked their logo and they played at the mall which I thought was crazy you know in my mind they're just playing in a shopping mall and there's a hockey rink all of a sudden so as a 10 year old i was like this is great so i liked the hartford whalers and then sure i liked the kings because they were the only team available to me uh i wasn't a kings fan but that was the team i would watch if i wanted to watch hockey and then when i got up to fresno and went to college at fresno state that's when i got in with the uh the fresno falcons and really became we met a a roommate of Eddie Garcia's was Guy Gary, who was a huge hockey fan, huge Kings fan. And he would show you the old Don Cherry Rock'em Sock'em fights and tapes. And you couldn't, his passion for the sport was uh, contagious. So he got us really into hockey at the time. And then right then is when the Ducks were coming into existence. So it was perfect timing for me that I was kind of exposed to the sport with the Fresno Falcons at the minor league level and a team, 
expansion team was being born in my hometown. I'm from Tustin, which is very close to Anaheim. So it was just perfect timing. I was already an Angels fan. They crossed the street. So it was great timing. And that's what that's when I really got into hockey was kind of when the Ducks came into existence. So that expansion year, uh, obviously, you know, you look at the old expansion rules, kind of similar to what we saw with the Vegas Golden Knights and what we'll see with the uh, the Seattle Grunge, as as I'm already calling them, um, they uh, they they had, they were able to take a, what was it twenty there's twenty five teams when the Ducks came in is that correct? Uh, yeah, I think they came in. They come in with the Senators. Yeah, right? that sounds right. And uh, it was it was weird because there was timing there. You know, they were expanding rapidly. So like the Sharks and Lightning came in one year, the Ducks and Senators came in another year, and then they just kept growing very quickly and teams were relocating Dallas relocated Hartford relocated so it was a sport in flux but yeah I think they got uh, 25 sounds about right of the number of players that they were able to get so uh, they they took from the St. Louis Blues uh, a goalie near and dear to my heart someone that I liked mostly because I was a kid and I enjoyed his name and I know you guys have had some fun with his name on the puck podcast Mr. Guy A. Bear um, what was your take on uh, the new starting goalie when you saw the uh, the, the Ducks take Guy Bear? Well, I mean, at the time, uh, 93, so I was 19. I had not been into hockey that long. I had never heard of this guy in my life. <laughs> so uh, all the players that they took in the expansion draft, and back then the coverage wasn't nearly what it was now. There was no internet for me to look these guys up. So I was relying on just absolute snippets in the Fresno Bee newspaper. Uh, it was really just a listing of names and positions. Knew nothing about these players, their age, their skill level, nothing. So I didn't even know it was Guy Bear, Guy Hebert, as far as Guy I Hebert, knew. Guy Hebert, yep. Because uh, that's the uh, name that I saw in the paper. And so I didn't know anything about him until I saw started seeing the games. The only player that they the Ducks the only player the Ducks talked about was Paul Korea because that was their first draft pick uh, in the in the actual draft the expansion draft of course was uh, a lot of players but the first draft pick the franchise player was Paul Korea and that's the only one they talked about really and he didn't even play that first year so the, watching the games I just knew the guy had a cool mask uh, he seemed to be the only one keeping the Ducks in games. And honestly, it was tough to see games. I wasn't in Southern California at the time. So, again, cable and satellite, not what they were. There was no center ice package for me to watch games. So I would get highlights on ESPN, and that was it. I couldn't get radio reception. It was very tough for me to follow the Ducks that first year, first few years. And so it wasn't until I moved back down uh, to Orange County after college in 97 that I really got to see the team on a daily basis. And then that was right when Paul Correa and Tamu Solani were taking over the league. And you talk about, you know, falling in love with a couple of players. My goodness. I mean, they were as good as it got and so fun to watch. And the team was getting better and it was great. Uh, by, so I kind of missed the, the growing pains and the bad years and got in just in, just in the nick of time, I guess. Yeah, uh, talking about that first year, um, a former Blue and the current head of the Blues alumni, Terry Yake, uh, was actually your team leader in scoring. Uh, he had uh, 52 points in, uh, I believe it was, I think he played all the 82 games that year. 
Um, so, so Yake, it's funny when when I talk about Terry Yake because, like I said, he's a former Blue as well, and and as I said, he you know he lives in the area. He's still very involved in the Blues, and and a, honestly, a, for those that have met him, know he's a, a wonderful man that uh, takes a lot of time with coaching and and uh, you know developing our younger players here. So. Uh, all, nothing but great stuff to talk about with Terry Yake, but it's funny when, when I think about him as a player, and maybe it's because I was such an avid hockey card collector, and this is something you, you like to, to joke about on the show, I best remember him as an Anaheim Duck, not even a St. Louis Blue. So, uh, And he was only there one season, was he not? Yeah, I don't think he was there much longer. A lot of those guys were transient at that point because they, the Ducks' approach was not to take building blocks. The Ducks' approach to the expansion draft was to put a team that would not be an embarrassment on the ice. Uh, They wanted to sell the sport, and as much as they were a joke in marketing with the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim being named after a kid's movie, they've got the Disney characters involved because Disney owned the team, of course. So there there was a lot of uh, things to, to mock. But their approach to the expansion draft was, we're going to be the toughest team we can build. So, you know, Bobby Dallas, Stu Grimson, Dave Carpa, uh, Terry Yake, Troy Loney, those guys were not messing around. And uh, they would at least be tough to play against. They weren't a great team, but they would be tough to play against. And I'm not surprised that Yake led them in scoring because they had no skill players. They didn't draft anybody that was certainly in their prime because the uh, the people that were limited uh, or available to them were not uh, were not good players. The, the rules were different back then as far as who they could protect, and so we were getting either the players they wanted to get rid of or the players that were kind of the depth on the roster and they didn't really care about. So the the Ducks kind of got the short end of the stick in expansion, and then. Uh, other teams because of their experiences and that of the Lightning and the Senators and the Sharks, and you look back at those teams, that first Senators team was historically bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at what they went through, and then they adjusted it to make it a little bit more equitable for the teams going forward. But yeah, that first team, uh, I, I definitely remember Terry Yake best as a duck, even though he was only here a year, maybe two at the most, but I still I remember all those guys. I went to a uh, reunion of the team back in 2013 the 20 year anniversary and met all those guys Ron Tugnut uh, and it was amazing to, to see the guys and how many of them I remembered Sean Hill and just you know just those were ducks to me and I know they had long careers with other teams but they were all mighty ducks to me and they always will be so are they remembered pretty fondly there in, in Anaheim I mean obviously you guys have had some some pretty successful years there. Uh, you know, we'll get to talking about the 2003 team that made it to the final, the 2007 Cup winning team, and then obviously the the success they've had since. But um, you know, it, it, to me, especially with the name change, uh, you know, on, from an outside looking in, it almost seems like that team is forgotten. That that original Ducks team. How how uh, are they received there in Anaheim, especially when they come back for those special events? Like uh, like you said, where you got to meet a bunch of the players. Well, with the exception of something like that, where they specifically identify them as alumni, and uh, you're going to meet the Ducks alumni and the players from the first team, 
uh, I'm fairly confident in saying that with the other than Guillet Bear, the entirety of the 1993 team could walk the concourse of the pond during a game and not be recognized by a single person. <laughs> uh, they're not remembered because it was 25 years ago at this point. They weren't a good team. Uh, they didn't stay here long with the exception of Guillet Bear. So they made no mark here to last other than being historical uh, novelties of being the first to do this, the first to do that. I, Stu Grimson would certainly be recognized because the Grim Reaper is an identifiable man that is still in the public eye. But, yeah, uh, Terry Yake, I mean, again, he could you know, almost introduce himself and people would be like, okay, are you selling insurance? What, what's going on? <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and Troy Loney was the first captain. Again, he could wear a jersey that said Loney, 24 on the back, and people would think, oh, it must be his name. You know, he must have gotten a personalized jersey, and he got the throwback. Good for him. <laughs> no, it's uh, absolutely no, I mean, I would think less than 10% of Ducks fans at a given game would know who they were. And I think that's a testament to two things. One, the success they've had since that has been much more memorable and is going to be uh, more prevalent in your mind. And two, the fact that it has been long enough now that there are adults with kids that have never known a league that didn't have the Ducks in it. And uh, that's ancient history. That's something that you don't see highlights of. It's tough to watch videos of. They just don't even talk about it. And uh, so it's very forgotten. I would think the same is true for a lot of expansion teams from the past. I don't think the Washington Capitals, who've had, I think, the worst expansion year in NHL history, uh, you know, the, the fans today are going to remember Olaf Kolzig and Yarmir Yager and, a, you know, a few players from the 90s, Chris Simon and those kinds of guys from that first cup run. And that's it. Before that, what am I really clinging to? What am I trying to remember and, and hold on to? So uh, kind of getting into the, as you mentioned, the Solani and Korea years, we're going to uh, break down Korea a little bit more since he played for both our teams here in a bit. But um, getting into those years, you start, you know, obviously uh, uh, moving from the building block phase to the, uh, you know, this is the team we're going to ice phase. And uh, again, you know, led by Timu, led by Paul Korea. Uh, I know Timu Solani is your favorite player. They they ran into a couple Red Wings teams, and if there's anyone that can relate to you, it's St. Louis Blues fans. Um, just a recap for Blues fans who want to feel miserable. Uh, the Blues lost in 96 in the conference semis in what is uh, one of the worst uh, uh, memories for Blues fans with the Iserman goal. Uh, lost in 97 in the conference quarters, 4-2. to two. Lost in 98, the conference semis 4-2, to two, and then lost again in 2002 in the conference semis 4-1. to one. They haven't beaten the Red Wings in a very long time in the playoffs, nor will they get the chance to uh, kind of redeem themselves unless it's a Stanley Cup final matchup, match which probably won't happen for a while. But Anaheim, they, they ran into some good Ducks teams, or some good Red Wings teams too. They were swept in 97, swept in 99, but then after that, the Ducks were able to kind of turn it around, and, and uh, they were able to beat them in 03 and then beat them in 07, which both years the Ducks ended up going to the Stanley Cup final, and one year they ended up winning it. So how much did you hate the Red Wings? Was, was, it, a, was it a hatred, or was it just kind of like a, ah, oh, that's that good team, hopefully the, the Ducks can squeak out a couple wins? I mean, was, was there a rivalry there for Ducks fans? 
not for me at least. Uh, I mean, you certainly didn't like them because they were the the tough kids on the block. You know, they were the best team in hockey. But because they were, there was no expectation to beat them. You know, you hoped you could, but I don't think I felt like uh, the Ducks were on even footing with a team that was Stanley Cup contender, had the greatest head coach in the history of the sport, had all these great legendary Hall of Famers and and players throughout their lineup. No, I, I, you know, yeah, the Ducks had a couple of nice players, but give me a break. We can't match that depth and that talent level. So uh, I was more, I looked at the Red Wings as them and the Avalanche at that time. as just kind of like, well, they're on that level. And the Ducks are with everybody else on the second tier, you know. So best we can do is lose to them in the playoffs. I didn't, uh, I didn't hold it against them, I don't think, certainly. And I know that uh, the Ducks getting the better of Detroit in 2007 in their cup run certainly erased any ill will I had towards them in the past. It was nice to finally get past them, but they weren't, uh, because they were just always there. You know, it's tough to remember now Detroit hasn't been good for a while, but they were always the barometer in sports, uh, in hockey. It was always in the Western Conference. You had to go through Detroit to get to the Stanley Cup final. You had to get, you know, at some point, you're going to play the Red Wings, and they're going to give you their best. Uh, it's similar to what the Penguins are now. Even though the Penguins may not be the defending Stanley Cup champs, nobody wants to play them in the first round, the second round, and so they're always going to be a team that is. Uh, a contender in the Eastern Conference playoffs. So I think the Red Wings were very similar. They had the talent. They had the experience. They had that swagger. And the the Ducks were still new-ish, you know, five, six years old at the most. Yeah, I don't... uh, (laughs) It was nice to play them and give them a run, maybe give them a scare. But in the grand scheme of things, I don't think anybody realistically expected the Ducks to win. Unfortunately, with the Blues being around since 67... That was also the expectation at St. Louis. You run into Detroit, yeah, you're probably out of the playoffs, unfortunately. Yeah. I get that the history is more with St. Louis, but for Ducks fans, it was just kind of, we're still new at this. We're still getting there. You know, they bet they're an original 16. They've been around forever. We'll get there someday, but we're not there yet. So when you won, and, and uh, uh, again, I'm not sure I, the audience uh, knows that uh, – there's a. I'm kind of gonna be jumping all over the place in terms of when these episodes are gonna be released. Um, uh, so I had Eddie Garcia on the last time I recorded an episode. Uh, your co-host from the Puck Podcast, and uh, you know Eddie kind of said that uh, he, he went off uh, uh, quite a bit about um, how much how good it felt to win that first cup in his team. You know they they were kind of and he's you know said he related to the Blues. Uh, more than any other team, and, and he says that he still roots for them every playoff because he wants to see us finally capture that cup. But uh, for you, it it was, I mean, obviously every every player, every uh, fan, every coach, doesn't matter how long the team's been around, they want to win the cup every year. Um, you know, but for you, you know, team's around since 93. Um, you know, you follow pretty closely. As I said, you had a uh, a couple runs there early, uh, most most memorably the the 2003 run with J.S. Jaguar. Um, but in 2007, they finally get over the hump. They have that amazing team that that uh, NHL teams try to model their teams after uh, that cup run. For you as a fan, I mean, you're what is that? Uh, uh, 15 years, 14 years uh, after the team 
comes into existence yeah. and they're winning their yeah. yep they're winning their first cup uh what was like i mean i know that obviously you have nothing to compare it to except maybe since you're a patriots fan and you can uh, kind of relate to that a bit but uh for you being a fan of a team that's only been around for such a short amount of time to win the cup i mean it, how does that feel as a fan? I mean, that's got to that's got to feel pretty pretty good to be able to say, "Hey, we we got to the cup faster than half the league." Oh, it was surreal. I mean, uh, because I was I've been being born and raised in Orange County. I was a Angels fan from day one, and always loved the Angels. And they finally won a World Series in two thousand two, and I was fortunate enough to actually be there in the stadium when they won, and it was. That was unbelievable to see the team I had rooted for my whole life win their first championship at home. I'm there. It was just a party with 50,000 people. So that's five years later. The Ducks have this team that is, from the start of training camp, the favorite to win the Stanley Cup. I mean, they went out and got Chris Pronger. They've got Scott Niedermeyer. They already had Solani. They have these young rookies that they may be calling up at some point, Getzlaff, Perry. Uh, they had Andy McDonald. They had, you know, young Chris Kunitz. And the team was built to, you look at it and you said this, and they still had Jay Shiger who made that cup runner with the Smythe winner just four years prior. So you knew they were going to be good. You knew they were. And uh, it was the whole season was fun to watch because they were the bullies of the NHL and they were winning. Uh, they could score goals. They could out-tough you, uh, physical play. They could do whatever you wanted to do. And it was fun to watch the entire year. And Brian Burke was such a, to use his term, truculent GM. He was <laughs> such a uh, jerk to everyone else. And you loved it because he was her, your jerk. Uh, Randy Carlisle seemed like a salty guy. He didn't seem like the kind of guy you wanted to go hang out with and you liked it because he was yours and then when they won the cup you didn't know it was going to happen of course but you knew there was a good chance it wasn't a surprise um and when they finally did it uh it was tremendous because to see a team go from an idea to the best team in the world within 15 years uh was just amazing and it was really the proof that a team could do that in the west coast and the southern and in southern california and the most i think the the two things that i was happiest about one i knew that they had won a stanley cup and i would never i would not go my entire life without seeing my team win a stanley cup and two and maybe even one a they beat the kings to it that was so so sweet because that just shut Kings fans up for five years and really gave us bragging rights. We thought forever. We thought the Kings, they've been around since 67. They've been to one. The Kings still have one division title in their history. One. I mean, the, the Ducks have that many from the last two years. So it's amazing to me that the, the, uh, the arrogance that they had had, the Kings fans, and now we were the champions. They were on the outs. They were not a good team. It was great, but it, Kings fans won't admit it, but I think the Ducks winning that cup is what spurred the Kings to actually 
pursue a Stanley Cup with earnest. Not that they weren't trying in the past, but it proved it was possible in this market. It proved it was possible in Southern California that you could build a team, and they knew they were losing the fan base because Southern California is a bandwagon area when it comes to teams. We have two of everything. We have two hockey teams, two uh, baseball teams, two basketball teams. Whoever's good is going to get the attention of the fan, the casual fan. Well, the Ducks were good. They won the Stanley Cup. They had these stars on the team, these Hall of Famers. The parade, uh, the championship parade, the Stanley Cup was brought in by then-Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger in a helicopter. I mean, come on. I mean, this was everything. So the Kings knew we got to do something to get these fans back and to make ourselves relevant again because we're not. And five years later, they had themselves a Stanley Cup of their own. And now we've got a very good rivalry going because both teams have won a cup. Both teams have proven themselves to be strong contenders. They're attractive to free agents. They can draft well, sign players, and retain talent. So it's been, uh, I think that first Ducks team really set the bar for California hockey and specifically Southern California hockey that this is possible and it is something that it's not just a pipe dream. It's theoretically possible. It's tangible at this point. We've got the cup. Our names are on it forever, and you can't take that away. And it says on the Ducks rings, championship rings, California's first cup. That's Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Hopefully uh, St. Louis will eventually be the Missouri's first cup, <laughs> not Kansas yeah. City. <laughs> yeah, take that, Kansas City scouts. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and so, uh, I, I, like I said, I do want to talk about Paul Correa, but but with us talking about the 2007 Cup run, um, I do want to talk about another player first, someone uh, near and dear to my heart, and uh, I know someone that uh, that you liked when he was on your team because you had to, but once he wasn't on your team, no more like for the guy, Chris Pronger. Um, he came to your team in, uh, in, in the draft, and was that the 06 draft he was traded? Yeah, from... Yep. Uh, the second, though, the first time for Joffrey Lupul. Um, and uh, he, uh, so obviously he, he brings in, I mean, you already had Scott Niedermeyer on the blue line. You had um, uh, Francois Beaujolais. You had some good defensemen, but then you get a guy who had just come off a cup run himself with Edmonton, uh, just falling short of winning the cup against the Carolina Hurricanes. He comes to your team. He brings that, you mentioned it earlier, truculence that Brian Burke wanted from his players. Um, you know, wh- when, when the trade happens, when, the, when the, uh, the mighty, or I guess the Ducks, acquire Chris Pronger at the draft, what were your thoughts? Were you thinking, okay, Stanley Cup, here we come? Or was it more, eh, let's see what this guy can do? Oh, no, it was Stanley Cup is ours. I mean, we already had a team that went to the conference final. And then we added the best player, the best defenseman from the team that beat us. And we already have a Hall of Famer in his prime in Scott Niedermeyer. We don't give up anything. I mean, like, I like Joffrey Lupel, but him and Ladislav Smeed, <laughs> let's drive them to the airport if we can get Chris Pronger. I mean, it's similar to the, the Tamu Solani trade that brought him to Anaheim. I mean, we liked Oleg Tevardovsky. But you're going to give us Tamu Solani for Oleg Tevardovsky and Chad Kilger? Huh. Okay, you know, let's let's sign it before you sober up because this is a 
And this was different because Pronger asked for a trade from the Oilers. Their hands were a little bit tied. I'm surprised they traded him to a division rival, but uh, that was the best offer, surprisingly enough. And, uh, no, I, I thought immediately this guy is going to help us win the Stanley Cup. I didn't know if it would be immediate, but I knew that with those two, and as you mentioned, the talent they already had, this was going to be a very, very strong team from beginning to end because we had the goalie that had proven himself in the playoffs. We had two incredible defensemen, plus depth behind them. We had a Norris Trophy-winning head coach to help them get the most out of their defense. And then Andy uh, McDonald, guy the Blues fans know very well, Andy McDonald, Chris Kunitz, Tamo Solani, the young players, guys like Mike LeClaire, who I loved back then. Uh, and I hated. Going. Oh, I loved it. Uh, <laughs> Turkey was great. Uh, but no, it was that was a great team. And then when they added... You know, Brad May, I mean, it was just the icing on the cake. I mean, this team was already uh, one of the biggest bullies in the, on the block, and then they add a guy that just, uh, just exactly just more of that, you know. just It, it, was, uh, it was a great team, and I love watching the, uh, the DVDs. When I, if, the, if the Ducks have years like this, I put in the DVDs and remind me of time, of better times. And that's one thing that I honestly hope look the Ducks have won their cup and I hope they win a cup every single year as you said every team does but I honestly hope that every organization wins a Stanley Cup because the fans deserve to see that at least once you at least deserve to see your team win one time now when it gets to be three four five like as you said I'm a Patriots fan I get it I get it that it's enough and if I wasn't a Patriots fan, I'd be sick of them too. But I hope that uh, the Blues, if they haven't already, won it this year because they have a very good chance. Um, if they're not the defending Stanley Cup champions going into next year, I hope they win one soon. And then the Blue Jackets and then the Panthers and then the, uh, all the other teams that haven't won one yet. And you got to win one often enough that the current fans can remember it. You know, it's one thing for the least to say we won a cup in 67 most fans today don't remember that so get them a new one uh but yeah it's i'll never forget that team and uh i am glad that i saw at least one stanley cup victory from my ducks and uh got to see so much of it in in person and what an incredible team that was all the way down to joe depenta just playing his role and those are the guys you need in in key situations in in playoff games is the depth players and that line of the, that third line of uh, Rob Niedermeyer, uh, trying to remember the other Samuel Paulson and can't remember the third oh Travis Moen. Oh, Travis Moen, yeah, unstoppable that that line they were they were great and uh, they were so good defensively. And you just knew they were going to make plays and shut down the other team. Oh, loved it. Loved that team. That's one that those players could walk the concourse and they will always be recognized. 93, no no chance. 2007 will always be recognized at the pump. So you mentioned it already that uh, you know this, this team had gone to the Stanley Cup final kind of surprisingly in 2003, uh, kind of backtracking here a little bit. Paul Correa, a guy uh, who everybody remembers from that final, the 
the big hit from Scott Stevens and then comes back, scores the big goal. And uh, just a one-of-a-kind one player when he was with the Mighty Ducks to, to run over the numbers really quick. Uh, 606 games played with the Ducks. Uh, 300 goals exactly. 369 points for 669. I'm sorry, 369 assists for 669 points. Um, but, uh, you know, it, you saw the dynamic Paul Korea. You saw the Korea and Solani years. You saw the the guy. Now, obviously, I know things didn't end well in uh, in in Anaheim with, with Paul Korea after that that visit to the Stanley Cup final. But um, when you think back about the, the playing days of Paul Correa, um, now we've talked about it. You know, your, your team wasn't exactly the best team out there at that time. But with guys like Korea and Solani skating out there, you had to think, right, that, that, that there's a chance. You get a seven-game series. These guys can just put their heads down, grind it out, go to work, and, uh, and maybe surprise some people. Well, it's funny you say you use those terms. Uh, the one thing I knew they were not going to do was grind it out. <laughs> right. Maybe that was bad terminology. <laughs> uh, yeah, they were going to float, and they were going to let Steve Ruchin grind it out, which is why my wife, uh, her favorite player in Ducks history is Steve Ruchin, and he's one of my favorites as well, uh, because he was doing all the dirty work in the corners and freeing up the puck and being defensively responsible so that those guys could fly around on the perimeter and be creative with the puck. And at the time... Unfortunately, the NHL did not reward skill. It rewarded size and toughness. So punks like uh, Gary Suter could cross-check Paul Korea in the head and receive a one-game suspension, give him a concussion, knock him out for the majority of the year, alter his career for the rest of his life. Uh, one-game suspension. You know, Now they'd throw him out of the league. They'd give him you know, 20 games or something, and it would be uh, horrific. But back then small players didn't thrive like they do now and so but he was so fun to watch when he was with the Ducks uh, because he was so fast so skilled so creative and teams couldn't match up with him you know you got guys like Darian Hatcher trying to skate Uh, he was playing 25 minutes a night for the stars at the time and, and trying to trying to match up with him on the perimeter was just a joke. Now, the one thing that they allowed Darian Hatcher to do was hook, cross-check, slash, and do whatever he had to do to stop him, but Paul Correa was still fast enough to get around that and, and create. And with him and Tim Wasolani, the chemistry was instant. It was uh, amazing to watch on a nightly basis. And that was, the team may not always win, but those two guys are going to be fun to watch. I think it's very similar to what the Avalanche have right now. Uh they may not win on a nightly basis, but you know that Landeskog, McKinnon, Rantanen line is going to be fun to watch. It's what the Stars had a couple of years ago with Ben and Sagan, and the Ducks were able to. It, it lasted a little bit longer in Anaheim, but it was uh, it couldn't last forever. Unfortunately, the Ducks were dumb enough to trade Tamuslani to a division rival for some of the worst return ever in Jeff Friesen and Scotch and Steve Shields. My goodness. Uh, yeah, Jeff Friesen's but, your favorite player of all time, right? Oh, he certainly is. Uh, he's <laughs> welcome here anytime, and uh, I will gladly call the police and have him arrested. Uh, but no, he, he uh, I mean, he was something else, because when he got, the Ducks traded him to, go on a tangent here, but the Ducks traded Solani to San Jose for Friesen and Shields, and Friesen did nothing but 
from all accounts that I've heard of people that talked to him at the time, nothing but whine uh, about why did the Sharks get rid of me. I can't believe they got rid of me. That was the team that drafted. That's where I wanted to be. He did not want to be in Anaheim. He didn't try hard here, and he was uh, nothing but uh, a, a crybaby about, I can't believe this happened. Fast forward a few years to 2003, and he's on the New Jersey Devils scoring huge goals and then taunting the bench. And boy, oh boy, the, the, I'm amazed at the control players and coaches have of their emotions on the bench. Because I would have done a Gary Suter right across his nose, man. I would have, I, 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 I couldn't have taken it. Especially if I was on the team when he was there and I knew how he behaved with the Ducks and the effort he put in with the Ducks. And then for him to do that against us in such a big game, I would have lost it. So I'm amazed at the control and the composure that players and coaches have because, as talked about it on the podcast, I'd get thrown out of games on a regular basis and I'd probably be in jail because uh, I would have assaulted. Like, just to give an example I of the composure, if I'm Sean Payton and I'll cross sports, and it's the NFC Championship game, and they don't call pass interference. I'm going to punch that man right in the face. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and they may have to take me out in handcuffs, but I am not going to just sit there and just yell and complain. I'm going to be physically angry because we've worked our entire lives and year for this, and you're going to blow it on that, on something that egregious? So it's that same kind of thing. With the blown calls uh, would just send me, I would lose my mind, and a player taunting like that, I would lose my cool. Uh, so I'm amazed at the composure they have. But yeah, Friesen, to get back to the Korea, his ability to play the sport at such a high level in an era when it did not reward that was uh, truly amazing. And his, I, I wish he had played now, because he would be, I don't think Connor McDavid good, but he would certainly be uh you know, Vladimir Tarasenko, Nikita Kucherov, Steven Stamkos, good. Johnny Gaudreau, good. Patrick Kane, good. He was that amazing of a player and a talent. That's a different player than we saw in St. Louis. Obviously, at that time, um, he was more of a name than he was a, a, a an elite talent. Um, just because, like you mentioned, I mean, he went through that era where, where the NHL rewarded physicality. And he had multiple concussions. We mentioned the Scott Stevens hit. We mentioned uh, Gary Suter. You know, I mean, just constant, constant, just awful hits on him that led him. I mean, he still had some decent years there in Nashville at the end of his career. But by the time he had gotten to St. Louis, and, and I think he would tell you the same, that uh, it he just wasn't the same player. And uh, he had a lot of injury problems his last year. And um, I think if he wouldn't have signed such a longer deal, I think he probably would have retired uh, two years sooner just because of, unfortunately, because of, of the era he played in. Yeah, and the physical toll, those are just the hits we remember, you know. Right. Back then, it was not a big deal to, if you went to the net, you were going to get hit. You were going to get cross-checked. You were going to clear the crease. Don't watch your pass. All those old sayings that they don't use anymore. Uh, and so it was, he took a lot of damage and his body took a, uh, a physical toll and he didn't have the speed when he was in uh, St. Louis, unfortunately, that he had in Anaheim. He didn't have the – and that's that's everything. If he doesn't have the speed, he does not have anything else to go with. You know, he's not physical enough to create his own space. 
create his own scoring opportunities. So the skill was still there, the hands were still there, but the speed to get into the open spots and capitalize on opportunities was not there. So the the injuries took their toll, unfortunately, and age. You know, it, it's we're in a different era now of training where players can play into their late 30s at a high level. Um, at that time, 35 was old. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, wrap up your career. If you were still playing at that point, you were probably somebody that was more positional and using your, you know, your like a Ray Bork, where you were kind of using your veteran presence to know where to be. You didn't have the foot speed to get there, but you knew where to be to get there ahead of time before the play happened. And those were the uh, the rarities. And now you see players playing into their late 30s still at a pretty high level because of the training and the, uh, the physical abilities that they have and the fact that the league doesn't allow people to cross-check them in the head, blindside hit them and knock them out with no punishment whatsoever. Scott Stevens received no penalty on that play. In fact, was lauded for a great hit. Yep. I mean, my goodness. I mean, again, he would be, he would be arrested at this point. It's, it's crazy to think how far the game has come uh, in terms of physicality. I mean, we all still love the physical hits. I mean, I'll admit I... As a kid, when I saw that hit in 03, I thought, oh, man, that, that was awesome. You know, and, and you see the, the you mentioned you call it the the Han Solo and frozen carbonite, the way he laid on the ice. It doesn't move. I mean, you, you're like, oh, that's such a good hit by Stevens. But, you know, you forget these people are human beings. You don't want to see that. You don't want to see these guys get knocked out like that. And I think the NHL has finally uh shown there that, that, that they need to be thinking about the players more uh, as years have gone on. Yeah, and uh, one of my favorite hits of all time is Brian Campbell and R.J. Umberger. Right. And that is the one where R.J. Umberger looked like Han Solo frozen in carbonite. I mean, <laughs> but then when you watch the documentaries about players that have had concussion issues and their description, the one that stood out to me was you're in a, uh, you're on the ice in an arena full of thousands of people, extremely well lit, and when you get that concussion, it's like stepping into a dark, quiet room. Everything goes black, and you can't hear anything. That's frightening to think about. And when you watch somebody get hit now, you think of that, and you think that's going to damage them the rest of their lives, most likely. Maybe not significantly, but that has done damage, and. Uh, the brain is, is moving around in the skull there, and if it hits the skull with some force, like which is what causes the concussion, the whiplash effect and the, and the impact, that's going to do some serious damage. So it's very scary to see, and if we saw any of those hits that we used to love and the NHL bumps and bruises videos that they play during TV timeouts or intermission that we would love to watch and cheer and, and relive over and over again, Watching those now would be a different reaction completely, and uh, I still want to see the big hits. Though you know, we talk about that on the podcast. I'm sure you do as well. Yes, that you still want to be able to hit a guy, and you still want to be. There's still going to be a physical play. Uh, it's it's about the intention. It's about the location of the hit, and how you go about it. You know, whether you don't see players leaving their feet anymore, you don't see many elbows up anymore, you don't see many sticks up anymore, but you're still going to see. These are large people traveling at high speed and it does it's an injustice to show it frame by frame in slow motion as the nhl says well he could have avoided contact with the head really you know when you're skating at full speed and he's skating at full speed and the game is adjusting you're supposed to 
able to make that split-second adjustment. I know these guys are elite-level athletes, but that's asking a lot yeah. for them to hit the shoulder instead of the, the head when it's literally a matter of two or three inches different between hitting a shoulder and hitting some, and then taking the head. So I've always said you got to look more at the intent. And I know that the player is never going to admit, yeah, I wanted to hit him in the head. I wanted to put him, I wanted to knock him out. But you can tell, you know, you can tell from the history of the game, the flow of the game and the situation. If two players are going for a loose puck and they collide and one happens to get hit in the head, there is no intention. That's not, that should not be a suspendable action. If, on the other hand, a player is going into the entry zone and a guy lines him up and comes flying at him like Scott Stevens did to Paul Correa and Eric Lindros, that's an intentional action. He's trying to hit him as hard as he can, and that's a difference. And that is the hit you want to remove from the game, not the ones of two guys happening to go for the loose puck. Well, uh, in terms of Paul Correa, uh, there's another player that played for both our teams, and you've mentioned him a couple times. It's kind of an undersized player and uh, had some issues himself with uh, with concussion and, and uh, just playing in a physical man's game that uh, uh, just – couldn't could t- took the toll on his body and unfortunately uh, had to retire a little earlier than I think everyone in St. Louis would have preferred and that's Andy McDonald. Um, so you mentioned he was on the 07 team, uh, a couple teams before that. Uh, just a good undersized player, quick. Uh, he was a first line center here in St. Louis, but I think he was used more in a, a second and third line role for Anaheim. You know, we, we could talk about him himself, but the one thing I definitely want to touch on, because I this was a trade that really intrigued me, and I'm not sure if it was a salary dump or what, but the year after the uh, the Cup win, so it's on December 14th, 2007, the Anaheim Ducks trade Andy McDonald in a surprise move to the St. Louis Blues for Doug Waite, a 2008 seventh-round pick, and some guy who I don't think ever played in the NHL named Michael Berner, uh, Doug Waite, he, he holds a special place in, in Blues fans' hearts. He was part of some really good teams. Uh, I loved his game when he was younger. Uh, Edmonton, his Edmonton days, as well as his, uh, uh, you know, obviously his first couple of years there in St. Louis. But at that point, Doug Waite was nothing more than a, a third-line center. Uh, yet the Blues end up basically making a one-for-one deal there and bring in uh, Andy McDonald, a guy who served on their top line for the next three to four years. What was your thought when that trade went through? Because I know we rejoiced here in St. Louis. What was it like in Anaheim? The opposite. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The The reason being is, uh, and I think Doug Waite, let me talk about him first, because then I'll get to Andy McDonald and the reasoning behind the trade. Doug Waite is the flip side of Paul Correa. Um, and by that I mean you, Blues fans will remember Doug Waite fondly for his skill and his success. Uh, Ducks fans remember him as what I called him dead weight. Yes. Uh, he was a piece of dung uh, for us. He was never any good. And when you, the thing that drove you crazy is we gave up Andy McDonald for this guy. Every puck he shoots is right at the goalie's logo on his chest. You know, the guy doesn't know how to pick a corner. He's not fast. He's not very big. He can't. There's no skill. There's nothing. So what did we get? Why did we do this? Um, and the reason being is because after 2007, two of the Ducks' best players decided they were going to retire. 
uh, Scott Niedermeyer and Timo Solani said, that's it. Except they never finished, they never filed the paperwork. And GM at the time, Brian Burke, said, we're going to keep the, uh, keep a roster spot open for you. And if you decide to come back, we will be happy to have you. Well, they both decided to come back. And once they did, they needed to free up salary space. And so they needed a dump salary, and that was Andy McDonald. And Chris Kunitz was another guy that ended up being a uh, unfortunate casualty of that, because the uh, the Ducks mistakenly decided to get veterans and try and keep the window open for the the short term, rather than keep guys like that and say goodbye to some of the veterans. So while we love. Scott Niedermeyer and Team Mussolini, and their numbers are retired here, they did screw over the Ducks that very next season with their indecision. If they had been clear in the summer, they could have made other moves to retain talent and keep the team together. Because Andy McDonald was awesome. Uh, he was a first-line center for the Ducks that year because he was playing with Team Mussolini. And I mentioned the, the young kids that they brought up. Dustin Penner was the third. They had this kid line that ended up being the second line, really. Uh, Getzlaff, Perry, and Dustin Penner. They were fantastic together. So you had these three young stars. Then you had Chris Kunitz, Tamu Solani, and Andy McDonald. Then you had that third line of Niedermeyer, Paulson, and Moen. And then you got Brad May and some other some spare parts on the fourth line. Well, I mean, you're ready to roll. And if you had been able to keep that together, you can do some things. But they decided... Now, let's get rid of our, who was our top-line center when we won the Stanley Cup. Get rid of him. Get rid of the other guy, because we got these two, you know, Getzlaff and Perry, and rightfully so, they were taking their, their place as the number one line for the Ducks at that point. And still had like, uh, Solani as the second-line winger or top-line winger if you needed. But, yeah, D- Doug Waite, that trade was awful, um, absolutely awful for the Ducks. And, uh it was start. It was the start of the decline, unfortunately for them. Brian Burke did not handle success well. He was great at building a team. He was not good at retaining a team. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, a lot of other teams fans would agree with you on that. Who's uh, seen his work and play? But uh, I do want to talk uh, a little bit about this last this past season. Again, we are recording this on March 29th. Uh, this will hopefully be airing in June because that means the Blues had a long playoff run uh, sometime. So uh, this uh, this last year was an interesting one for both our teams and in the exact opposite way. Yeah, obviously, everyone knows the story, but uh, you know the Blues go up in the standings, the Ducks fall in the standings right at the same time. Uh, we've mentioned on this show uh, numerous times during that, that run that <laughs> it was just interesting because you see – the Blues winning games, and I mean, almost the entire Western Conference was losing every game, at least the teams that they had to climb to, to, to catch. And and it was just an interesting, just, you know, it, it was it was an embarrassment of riches for Blues fans. Hey, the team's coming together, and the rest of the league's falling apart. So it was, it was nice here, but I know that in Anaheim, it was rough. Um, I mean, there was a joke I know one time my co-host, Kurt, I asked what the Ducks' uh, losing streak is at, and he says he thinks it's at 127 games, um, you know, a 12-game losing streak. And we've seen the yeah. graphs of the Blues, you know, uh, their, their rise to stardom, the, uh, going all the way up, all the way up. And then I remember we saw one where it just had all the, it just had the Blues listed, and it showed all the other teams, but it didn't say who they were. And there was another team at the exact same time that 
had the exact opposite fall down. And I remember saying, man, who is that? Is that, is that Minnesota? Is, am I, no, 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 that's Anaheim. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's got to be Anaheim. So for you as a fan of this team, and again, you've seen plenty of success with this team, but right now it's, it's kind of the dark days here for the Ducks. What was this year like for you as a fan of, the, of this team? Well, uh, for the Blues, their success in starting in January was overdue, right? Yep. Uh, we In training camp, most people thought the Blues would be a very strong team. They had a good offseason. They had added talent. You thought, this is a team that's going to be a contender in the Central Division. They're going to be one of the top three teams in the Central, and on we go. And so their start was very surprising because you expected them to be better. Well, the second half, they played like we thought they would. Better, even. I mean, they've been the best team in hockey in the Western Conference. The Ducks were expected to be a playoff contender based on past results. but uh, And they got off to a pretty good start. You know, through uh, mid-December, they were in a playoff position. And they were playing about like you thought. You know, they weren't great, but they weren't bad. And uh, good defense, good goaltending, sure. And then they absolutely went down an elevator shaft and uh, completely bottomed out in February. And uh, it was awful because it's been a long time since they've been that bad, and it was really tough to watch. Um, You and I had talked before we began recording about the first half of the Blues season and the second half of the Ducks season. They're tough to watch, you know. You know when your team's bad, and when you turn it on and you're like, man, this is... I don't even want to watch the game, but I'm going to start. Let's see how they do. Nope, not tonight. I'm (laughs) going to go, you know, what else is on? Uh, Because this is supposed to be entertainment at the end of the day, and this is not entertaining to watch your favorite team lose. The one good thing about the Ducks bottoming out is that it it has forced them to finally quit uh, applying band-aids to the team and the roster. And they could finally be honest about the fact that, okay, we need to do some serious changes here. Rather than give minutes to guys like Brian Gibbons and Carter Rowney uh, for no reason, why don't we bring up some of the kids and let's give guys like Max Jones and Sam Steele and Troy Terry some minutes and a chance to play. And hey, what do you know? They're good. Uh, and that's where the, the, the hope comes, because you still have Getzlaff. Perry returned from injury. He's not nearly the player he was, but, you know, he could probably give you 15 to 20 goals in a year if just from knowing where to go and being in the, the net front presence on the power play. So if you've got those guys as the veteran presence, you've got the young players, there's no more delusions of being a playoff team with the core you have. You have to add to it it does allow you to look at the game a little bit differently. And so I've been watching since Randy Carlisle got fired and Bob Murray took over as the interim head coach. Uh, he's obviously still the GM. I've been watching with a different motivation. Yeah. You know, you're watching to see what is the building block for the future as opposed to what is salvageable this season. And that makes it a lot more palatable. The losses, you're like, okay. I didn't, you know, it's not about this season. It's about what do we have for next year. And that was a good game from Troy Terry. That was a good game from Sam Steele. I liked the puck possession that Max Jones, I liked him standing up for his teammates. I liked the way Sammy Paulson's played, or uh, not Sammy Paulson, uh, Jacob Silverberg (laughs) has played since he got his new contract. He's been engaged. 
Ryan Getzlaff still seems to be a leader. So there's those pieces that you can build around. But, boy, up until they fired Randy Carlisle, it was uh, brutal. It was as bad as I can remember for the Ducks. And uh, just awful to watch a team that can't score, couldn't play defense, didn't even seem to be trying. And that was the one that was frustrating is they didn't even seem to care. And that was what Bob Murray talked about is I want to see there's no pushback. You know, there's no... There's no fight, there's no energy, there's no life. It's just they go out there, they give up the first goal, and they lay down. So he's changed that, uh, and hopefully we'll see some changes in this offseason as the team continues to get rid of the, the veterans that, like Ryan Kessler and Patrick Eves that uh, are not NHL-caliber players anymore due to physical limitations and bring in young players. Plus, they're going to have a draft lottery pick, and uh, I know we will already know who they what their uh, draft position is by the time this airs, but I'm hopeful that the, uh, the ping pong balls will bounce in their favor and they can end up getting a first or second overall pick and get an impact player that they can add to what I think is already a pretty solid set of prospects. Doug, we could go on for hours and hours as I could have with Eddie as well. Um, you know, I've known you guys for multiple years here and uh, uh, you guys are always fun to talk to. You know, you're, you know your stuff, which I appreciate. I know uh, you guys a lot of times will get trouble from other fans for being quote-unquote California hockey fans, but uh, you guys are, are definitely a lot of fun to have on. Um, I know our audience appreciates it when I have you guys on. So, again, thank you for coming on. But before I let you go, I want you to uh, – and I, I did the same thing for Eddie, so I know all of that's going to be similar. But uh, how can people find you, find your show, The Puck Podcast? How can they interact with you? And, um, and you know, anything you want to plug here, go ahead. Well, we're available at most Greyhound bus stations on the, uh, on the intercom. So you can head over there and, and listen in most, I think it's Tuesdays mm. at about 2.30 a.m. They start playing the show. So uh, be there. Great group of people at the Greyhound bus station. Always. Uh, yeah, always a, a high-class clientele. Um, or if you don't want to do that, if you enjoy, you know, cleanliness, your safety, <laughs> and lucidity uh you can go to puckpodcast.com our website of course any itunes or any podcast software that you use look up puck podcast uh twitter at puck podcast facebook.com slash puck podcast and that's uh the majority of the ways but of course the other podcast i do is time capsule movie reviews and i'll just give a uh, plug for that if you want to hear it's a show where me and another friend uh, go over movies from 25 years ago or older and discover if they are lost treasures or just better off forgotten. Things like Big Trouble in Little China, Clue, uh, movies like that, The Burbs. So uh, if you're interested in older movies and kind of a, a humorous take on them, then I would uh, hope you check out Time Capsule Movie Reviews as well. But other than that... Uh, really appreciate you having me on jeff it's it's always good to talk with you and i hope that this is airing just a couple weeks after your blues win their first stanley cup and that you are enjoying the same off season of celebration the one thing i will tell you is when not if but when the blues win that first stanley cup uh my experience in 2007 was you never want that next season to start right because the minute it does, you're not the defending, you're not the Stanley Cup champs anymore. Uh, that off season is glorious because, especially now with Twitter and Instagram and all the social media and all the the, the uh, internet media accounts 
you'll be able to follow the cup and the exploits of your favorite players and their celebrations with it in great detail. Uh, we would get reports from what the Ducks were doing and stuff on TV and stuff, but being able to see their celebrations directly is uh, going to just enhance it that much more for your experience. And you're going to have every day, it's going to be somebody else has it, somebody, there's a parade here, there's a celebration there, they're doing something fun there. It's a great, great off-season of just celebration of what your team has accomplished. And uh, hopefully you're experiencing that as you listen to this. But if not, hopefully in the very, very near future. And I think they got a team that certainly set to contend for years to come. I love watching Robert Thomas play, and I think he's going to be uh, an impact player sooner rather than later for this team as they start to phase some of the older guys out. He's going to be the guy, one of the guys that takes over as a real impact player for you guys. He certainly does not look unwell, if you ask me. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Bad, bad jokes that we make here on the show. <laughs> you might make bad movie references on your show. We make bad music puns on ours. So there you there go. You go. <laughs> All right, Doug. Well, thanks again, man. I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, hopefully you're right. Hopefully everyone's listening to this as we're all enjoying a Stanley Cup win. But uh, if not, as Blues fans say, there's always next year. That there is. Hey, that's right. We are celebrating. I'm glad I was able to say that and uh, not jinx it. So we are celebrating St. Louis. Party's still going, right? Uh, Doug, big thanks to Doug. Uh, Again, just a fun guest. Had him on a couple times on this show in the past. Um, Doug and Eddie have become good friends of mine uh, in terms of hockey coverage and guys that we, you know, I text throughout the year and uh, even talk on the phone every now and then. And of course, anytime I make make my way out to California or they make their way to the Midwest, we always make it a point to meet up. So always good talking to those guys and and love having them on the show. Twitter handles for the show. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, the show handle is at LGB Radio. Kurt Price is at Kurt Price. Bill Day is at Billy Blue Note. And myself, Jeff Ponder, can be found at JPonder94. Our next episode will be Thursday, July 22nd. I welcome in Mike Murphy of Blue Shirt Banter uh, to talk about the New York Rangers. It's kind of funny. You're going to hear about it um, when this episode posts. Uh, that there was a weird coincidence that Mike and I had kind of a, I guess you could say a mutual friend, even though this guy lives in New York. Uh, it was just odd, and we kind of discovered it right before we interviewed or had talked to each other. So uh, it, it's, it, it was interesting for me. Anybody else listening might say, I don't give a shit. Let's just talk Rangers and Blues, right? Well, it was interesting for me, so hopefully it'll be interesting for you. That will conclude this week's episode. Again, thanks to Doug for coming on. Thank you for listening, and until next time, everyone, let's go Blues. Play Gloria! Thanks for listening to the Hockey Show Blues Report of the Week. Have a great day. 